glad you guys are here. We're going to talk about rock and roll. Um, the year that I, I wrote my paper on criteria for judging rock music in seminary in that ethics class, I think there was also uh, a friend of mine that did a paper on manic depression among rock musicians, um, kind of referencing the Jimi Hendrix song, you know, that, that song. And then um, somebody else that did something about legalization of marijuana. So I remember the professor equipping that he got papers on sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Uh, there was lots of papers about sex, you can imagine, in ethics class. Um, let's see, all right, there's a book that I think is really helpful um, in thinking about popular music, rock music, um, electronic media, a lot of these things. There's a lot of books um, that I, I don't fully agree with that are a little more alarmist, like um, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. I like the intro to that book. Um, the rest of the book, I think at times, there's places where I definitely would diverge. There's some folks up at Calvin College guy named Quentin Schultz, Bill Romanowski I mentioned yesterday, that I think um, are better guides in how we should think with the biblical world might be about pop culture and electronic media. Um, Quentin Schultz has a book that's out of print, which is, would be really helpful for you to find, called Redeeming Television. But he also headed up a study for a year, um, various professors from various departments at Calvin, people from the youth ministry, you know, psychology, sociology, um, communications, music, all these different people basically took a year sabbatical and worked on this project together with a grant from somewhere or other to think about youth, electronic media, and popular culture. And the book that they published as a result of that is called Dancing in the Dark. And it came out quite a few years ago, but it's still a very good book in giving you a framework for how to think about these things. And I found it very helpful um, in coming up with, with this talk that we're going to do today. Uh, I've added to it, expanded on it. There's a little place, a few places where I might disagree slightly, but in general, I think they've sort of charted the course, and now we can sort of take that and add to it and flesh out more fully certain areas, all right? But I definitely encourage you to check out this book, Dance in the Dark. You can find it on half.com, I imagine, for less than a couple bucks. The shipping will probably cost you more than the, than the book because it's been out for a long time, and... Um, it, it, I really recommend that you get it, and I put it there at the top um, so you can look at it. All right, so before we talk about criteria for judging rock music, we've got to say a few other things. One of the things we've got to talk about is what is rock anyway. And I, I said last time, it's a lot easier to define when you hear it than it is to put that in words. Um, it's, it's a more difficult question than it may at first appear. Um, but rock music, in, in, in a lot of ways, and this is what Schultz and these guys say, um, there are three aspects to it that seem to all go into what makes a piece of music rock music. All right? One is uh, a cultural phenomenon. There's no doubt that it's not just a music, but there's a whole culture around it that distinguishes it from other music, especially you know, in, in the early rock. Like You listen to some of the electric blues of the same period, and it's really almost seems arbitrary to call this rock and this not. Um, anyway, like, you know, then there's, there's also a way of playing, an attitude, if you will, similar to jazz in this. And there's a particular form. There are some things about the form that we'll talk about. Um, and none of these dimensions by itself are sufficient to explain what rock is. First thing I want to just for briefly mention is rock is a cultural phenomenon. And we've already talked about how all music is cultural activity a map of reality lived out before God. 
Rock music is closely connected with the youth culture, without a doubt, and the quest for eternal adolescence, um, which, you know, is good and bad, right, in a lot of ways. But it's, it seems that, in a lot of ways, part of the message of rock music is bigger than just what the lyrics say. It is sort of an attitude of youthful um, zeal for life, if you want to say it in a positive way, or you would, you know, say passion's out of control if you're, you know, concerned about this. But there's definitely something about youth and adolescence and rock. The way Schultz says it is rock is a dramatic, participatory anthem of teen life, freighted with the intense experience of what teens believe, feel, value, and do. Now, I don't, I don't want to exclusively say that rock music is the domain of teenagers, because I don't think that everybody that listens to rock music who's not still a teenager is wishing they were still teenagers again. I don't wish I was a teenager again. I hated high school. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in junior high, I was worse. So, but I, I do think there's some connection. Even though it's hard to define exactly, I think most people would say, yeah, there does seem to be a connection between rock and roll and teen angst in some ways. They kind of grow up together in a lot of ways. So as a cultural phenomenon, there's something sociological. There's a sociological dimension of rock and rock culture. Um, but it also can be defined as a musical genre. Now, a genre, you know, there's lots of genres. Jazz is a genre. Rock is a genre. And there's a bunch of subcategories, right? And, you know, it's so fascinating to hear people talk about this band. Somebody described um, a musician the other day to me as Appalachian ragtime rock. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's, I don't know what that could sound like. That sounds really interesting. It's like, we're, you know, it's so fascinating. We live in a time of convergence where people are trying to combine older things in new ways. And, um, but rock as a whole is certainly um, a genre. It has a certain style brought out by various elements that you can analyze if you're a musicologist. Um, the beat, the backbeat, strong backbeat, but again, you know, not all those. I mean, uh, they don't all have two and four backbeat, but there's something, there's something about the beat that's pretty um, typical in rock music. Emotional intensity, which draws often on the blues, right? Um, particular sounds, um, sounds like, you know, a human voice with some edge to it. Um, electric guitar, drums, certain instruments that seem to fit. Again, as soon as you start finding this, you see how quick and easy to say, well, I can think of music that I know is rock music that doesn't do any of these things. You see the difficulty in trying to define why this is rock and something isn't. Um, and, but then I'd also say that it has a certain feel. And all I can tell you is, as a musician, when I, uh, the same thing with jazz. Like, you could tell, when I was, I went to Berkeley College of Music, which is mostly a jazz school, and you could tell, like, people that were jazz players who were trying to play rock. There was an inauthenticity to the feel. I, I don't know how to describe it better than that. I mean, I'm sure you could analyze it in terms of phrasing, um, where they place the beat as far as a little ahead of the time or a little behind the time, and we'll talk about that later. Um, just a certain approach, more slurs versus more picking every note on the guitar. I, there's different, all kinds of different little things, little, different embellishments, but you can, if you're a, a, a musician and you're, you know, you've been playing for a while and you're, you're pretty, you know, decent at, at your instrument, I think you can pretty much tell, at least I could and all my friends could, if somebody was an authentic rock player or if they really were kind of posing. The same thing goes for jazz, right? There's a certain feel, a certain style. It's very complex to, under, to try to analyze, but it's true. When I think about 
you know, if I'm playing jazz, or I'm playing country, or I'm playing rock, or I'm playing blues, there's different ways that I play. There's different, uh, even a different feel that I do with the pick, a different thing I do with my hands, different tone that I'm looking for on the amplifier, different embellishments. There's all the very subtle, yet nonetheless very real um, differences, right? And so I think that this is, this is important to understand. Now, this is why, one of the reasons why sheet music is not really the way that rock and jazz and blues are communicated. And I hope you understand this. Sheet music, you know, the way we write music down in the Western notation way of doing things is just one of many ways that you can try to communicate what a particular piece should sound like. It's, it's helpful in some ways, but it doesn't capture a lot of the things that make jazz jazz or rock rock, or the blues for that matter. So I understand, you know, trying to, I've got some books of some of the first people that were trying to go down to the plantations in Mississippi and, you know, capture the original country blues and trying to write it out using Western notation. It just doesn't work. There's all these notes that, that these guys are singing that don't, don't fit on the bar lines. They're in between kind of things. And, and I think that that's true of rock music and jazz music. It doesn't mean that they're inferior. It means that there's a real different style, a different thing. That's, I think, one of the things to appreciate about it is some of these subtle variations. Because one of the things that I think you'll learn if you really dive into understanding rock and what makes some pieces better than others is a lot of it's about subtlety. So a lot, a lot of this is about subtle variations. And um, if you're ever, if you've ever been in a recording studio and people are spending an entire day trying to get, you know, a guitar part just right, you realize that a lot of thinking goes into this. Not, not from everybody, but from a lot, a lot of the bands that you like. A lot of, a lot of effort goes into it to get it just the right feel. I know bands that have, you know, cut songs 50, 60, 70, 100 times trying to get it just right. Um, and so I think a lot of people just see, you know, just a superficial glance that rock music isn't very sophisticated, but a lot of the sophistication is in these subtleties that are hard to even describe to you. All right, so I'm going to keep going. Um, there's a certain form or structure to rock music. This is a helpful thing to think about. I suspect this will be new to y'all. Um, there's a book that I like called On Record, by, edited by Simon Frith. It's, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a bit old now. It's from the early 90s. But some very interesting articles trying to think about rock music from a musicology standpoint. And Andrew Chester has an article in there where he talks about two basic ways that music can be developed. One he calls extensional, and the other is intentional. And because he's you know, a professor, he, he says this is about as convoluted a way as possible. Um, but here's what he says, you know, Extensional development is where you have themes and variations, counterpoint, tonality, all the devices build diachronically and synchronically outward from the basic musical atoms. What the heck does that mean? The complex is created by combinations of the simple, which remains discrete and unchanged in the complex unity. What he means is the way a lot of Western classical music builds is from simple motifs that get developed in various ways and put together and built into longer pieces. That's one way to build up a piece of music. But there's another way to build a piece of music. And this is the way that most musics that have a basis in the blues or African-American musical styles, a lot of folk styles have these, this um, way of doing things, where they are intentional. 
Um, what he means is you have like a 12 bar, 12 measure that makes up the song, say a blues, and each time you go through it, there's subtle changes, subtle variations. So the interest, the reason you can be interested in hearing it for three or four minutes is because there's changes going on. It may, on a superficial glance, look like it's just the same 12 bars with the same chord progression over and over again because the musical interest, the sophistication of this style of music is not built by you know, changing the order of the chords in the next 12 bars and then flipping them upside down and backwards and seeing all the different permutations you can do. No, it's more on subtle variations, but still sticking to it where you say, well, this is the 12 bars. Does that make sense? So that's a very different way. Those are two very different ways of building up larger musical pieces. The problem, I think, with a lot of critics and the way they think about rock music, I'm talking about sort of more traditional music critics, is they're trying to apply this way of building themes to a style and to a genre that doesn't work that way, right? So, of course, it's going to seem like it's simple and naive because it doesn't seem to do much of interest. Like, the chords never change, the same thing over and over again. Um, it's always interesting to me when people criticize some of the tunes that we do in RUF for hymns because they think that, you know, that they're you know, not musically sophisticated because really hymns lend themselves more to this intentional kind of musical um, piece rather than classical musical pieces in the sense that you don't have a motif developed in a hymn. What you have is a certain length that gets repeated every time. What changes are the words, right? Um, and the meter that most hymn tunes are used is based on a more popular folk tune meter rather than classical poetic meters anyway. Um, but anyway, I don't want to get too far on that. So that's, you know, this structural thing to say about rock music. It's not true just about rock music. It's true about jazz. It's true about um, folk music and blues, a lot of other things. Um, yeah. All right. Now, the last thing I want to say about this whole little point is there really is value and something to really appreciate is working creatively within a form that may be somewhat limited. Um, you don't have infinite variety in really any kind of music. There are always certain things that are appropriate and certain things that just seem like they stretch the form so much that it breaks. And creativity within those limits is something to be praised. And so, you know, when you think about rock and you think, well, the form seems rather limited, uh, actually, I think it's a real challenge to work creatively within it and try variations on the structure itself. And the artistry comes in maintaining the balance between freshness and breaking the form by going too far. You know, how to find that balance between freshness. It doesn't sound trite. It doesn't sound like, oh, I've heard this you know, a million times. But it also, you get a sense that, yeah, I, I can grab hold of this right away. It's instantly accessible and yet fresh. There's something about that, actually, that is similar to writing a good hymn tune, or even to writing a good hymn. Um, there's not very many hymn writers who are great poets. Very few great poets have, have been good hymn writers. Really only two. William Cooper, who wrote There's a Fountain Filled with Blood and God Moves in Mysterious Ways, you know, was a you know, very renowned poet. I think he was the, you know, the what is it, the, the poet laureate of England for a time. Um, 
And then there's also a guy named James Montgomery. You, you, his hymn you might know is Angels from the Realms of Glory. He was also a really fine poet. But And Montgomery writes a little essay about hymns where he says, the trick in writing a good hymn is that the words have to be understandable the first time you sing it. You need to understand. The language can't be so opaque. This is why most poets don't make good hymn writers, because they use imagery and words in a way that are too opaque, and you have to really meditate on it to get what it says. That doesn't work well for a hymn. A hymn needs to be instantly accessible. You need to understand it. But yet, Montgomery goes on to say, the more you listen to it, the more you appreciate the subtlety, and the more you understand depths of, and levels of meaning in it. And that's difficult to do. It's difficult to do. And I would say the same thing is true about rock music. There's a sense in which you don't want to, like, it's hard to, like, listen to a record a few times if the first time or two you hate it. Um, and so there needs to be something that you like about it right away. And yet, if there's nothing to repay you listening to it over and over and over again, then it's probably not very excellent within the genre. Right? Okay. Uh, a bit here on how rock communicates. Because if you're thinking about judging rock music, a lot one of the ways that you have to think about it is what is it saying? And this is an area that's important to understand that rock music, really like all kinds of music, communicates in ways other than simply the words and what the words are saying. Uh, I think a lot of Christians really miss this. Communication extends beyond mere words. We know that in you know, person-to-person -person communication. Um, but rock music works that way as well. There are certain messages conveyed, not by backward masking, but by um, sounds. Sounds that have a particular meaning within the language of rock, which is connected to um, sort of the history and the, the sounds that have, you know, said certain things in certain ways. All of this is subtle. You don't, you don't really... It's sort of beneath the surface in a lot of ways. You hear it and you understand it um, because you've been grown up. You've grown up with the grammar of rock music all around you. But there really are certain sounds that convey certain things. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the history of rock. And somewhat can be different generationally because some of these sounds and grammars change. Just like if you read the King James Bible, you'll find that some of those English words, their meaning has changed over time. The same thing can happen with musical sounds or chord progressions. Um, so, but, but the thing I want to say here is this is a complicated area to talk about how does rock communicate. Um, I think that one of the problems, at least I think a lot of problems with earlier Christians who got all upset about rock music is they would merely look at the words and think that they've exhausted the meaning. And, you know, and they, they found it very, I remember my mother found it very difficult to believe that I didn't listen to the words or even know what the words were or really care about the words. And it, it doesn't seem, you know, some people are really into words. They are. Some people, they don't really listen to the words. I like this quote by Eddie Van Halen. He, uh, he was once asked what his mother would thought about the lyrics to some of Van Halen's songs. Um, and the lyrics in, the, in the Van Halen were always written by David Lee Roth, at least in the classic Van Halen. You guys grew up with Sammy Hagar Van Halen, or, or who knows what. Uh, but David Lee Roth was the real Van Halen. Um, but Eddie Van Halen was asked that one time, says, I don't even know what the lyrics are. 
It's his own band with his name. He doesn't even know what the lyrics are. And he really may not. He's just over there rocking on his guitar, doing that thing, and he doesn't really care. He hated David Lee Roth anyway. In his monitor, he thought he was a, you know, an arrogant, you know. Yeah, but, you know, most, most great rock frontmen have to be, like, completely arrogant or just completely have no sense of um, self-consciousness in any sort of way. David Roth is sort of the epitome of that, I think. Um, so, you know, it, I, I believe, you know, what Schultz is, is saying here, I, he says that most rock is not received, or most rock is received not primarily in terms of text. That text is secondary in a lot of ways to the meaning of rock and roll. And, you know, that's why in, in some rocks, you know, rock genres, you can't even understand what the words are at all. Right? You know, this screaming emo kind of stuff. It's, man, I don't know. I can't understand that. I thought I was pretty good at picking out lyrics, but, you know, there's some. Or, you know, if you listen to rock records from the 70s, the vocal is much lower than it is on pop music as far as the relative balance of the levels of, of volume levels. Um, it makes the guitars and the, and the drums sound bigger to, put, to drop that, you know, vocal down into the mix, right? And um, you can't hear all the words. I mean, when I was, you know, mixing, mixing records, it was, you know, really what was more in in the 70s and 80s was, you know, maybe every third word you could hear. It didn't matter if you missed some of the words. But that's not the way they mix records now, right? So there's differences, changes to that thing. Um, and I think it goes to show that it didn't matter if you missed half the words. And I always thought it was fascinating. One of the differences between Christian rock and, and um, you know, secular rock was the vocals were always too loud in Christian rock. It was. It didn't sound. It didn't sound right. It sounded weeny because the drums and the guitar didn't sound big enough because the vocals were too loud. Because the Christians thought you should hear every word. So the words mattered the most. But that's a failure to understand what rock and roll is about. In some ways. Um, so what I'm saying here is that rock communicates on several layers at once, and you have to try and understand how these layers are working together. Maybe even pulling at each other to really understand what it's communicating. Um, they have this whole thing where they talk about how rock communicates because of its social context in, um, in this book, Dance in the Dark. I'll just say it quickly for you, and you can look at what I said here. Um, but he talks about the way rock functions in our culture a number of different ways. Rock functions as the new romanticism. It functions as an expression of and symbol for celebration. In other words, rock music can be fun. It can be expression of a kind of innocent and exultant hedonism. A delight in the simple pleasures of the body and of consciousness, of the goodness of being alive. I, I remember they don't do. I don't. I don't know many songs lately that do this. But when I was growing up, there was tons of songs about just the goodness of rock and roll, right? Songs praising rock and roll for rock and roll. Say, there's not as many of those anymore. I think you know we live in a more pessimistic time. But there was more of this sort of just the goodness of being live and the goodness of being able to rock. You know, that, that things have changed culturally. Um, I, I think also one of the ways that rock works sociologically is protest. And again, a lot of people say, well, you know, this is why rock music is bad. But of course, in a, in a, in a broken world filled with injustice, who would want to say that protest is a bad thing? Right? And I think more and more so people are using 
rock music and popular music to protest um, and to raise awareness and to question the status quo. And uh, I, I think that's a good thing. I think rock and roll does that particularly well. Um, and then one of the other things they say that they say is often overlooked is the way that rock works in our culture as a healer. Listen to what Schultz says about this. Rock contains enormous cathartic power to help you deal with life's problems and contradictions. For whatever else it might do, rock does at times provide solace and define community. Now, as a pastor, I'm not completely satisfied that people's community is based around the fact that they all like the same band, but at least there's something there. At least it's something. I want the community to, get, to go beyond that. I certainly, uh, as a Christian, want community that crosses you know, boundaries. You know, if, if Jesus died on the cross to bring Jews and Gentiles together, then, you know, people that like different bands should be able to come together. <laughs> but there is a sense in which, in which people do find a certain community around, they all like this band. And there is something really huge, like the closest thing to, you know, a worship service that you have is going to, a, you know, a concert where all these people, or some, maybe a sporting event, where you're all united and praising something together. There's something about that that just connects to something, well, connects to what you were ultimately made for, which is to take your place alongside others, praising the Lord of glory. And there's a, there's a, there's a dim echo of that um, when you, especially in a concert experience. And it is interesting, I think this is a cool thing, that the music industry is really shifting more towards live music experiences. That's where the money is now. People can't make any money selling records. Right? That's why the record companies are all going bankrupt. But with the rise of the internet and the ability to target market and be able to build up enough of a fan base, like you can be you know, an independent artist and carve out a reasonable existence and live and not have to be a slave to the record company. I'm much more excited now about my friends that do music for a living because they don't have to tour in ridiculous ways that are never helpful for family life. So there, there's a sense in which like my friend Derek Wick would say, you know, musicians need to think of themselves as blue-collar workers. And in, the, in the old days, you would think about sort of writing a hit song, and that would be like hitting the lottery. But it doesn't really work that way as much anymore. <coughs> now, most musicians, there's still going to be a few, but you know, most musicians are going to basically have to consider themselves blue-collar workers. And you go out, and you play, and you make some money, and you sell your merch, and you just, you know, you can make a living if you're smart in how you do that. And uh, I think that's a really great thing because I think it allows a lot of different kinds of music to get out there. One of the difficulties, and maybe you know, some of you will take up this challenge, but one of the difficulties now is the just enormous proliferation of so many bands and so many musicians um, that there's really a need for people who are good at evaluating what's good and what's not so good. Um, I think this is why Pitchfork, you know, is a good service, right? Y'all know about that? Um, they review a lot of indie music and will point you to stuff that's particularly good. Well, I think there's a, a real need in our day for people to say, part of my calling is to sift through a lot of music and say, this is good and this is great. Y'all should know about this, right? And probably y'all do that anyway. Um, my, Mako Fujimura, who's a uh, visual artist up in New York, says that the great need of our age is for curators. For curators, for people who would put together and say, this is good, y'all listen to this, look at this, this is good stuff. Um, I need that, I always tell my students, you know, 
point me out the, the good music. I don't, I don't want to know everything. I want to know what's the, what's the really good stuff. Let me know about it. I want to hear it. All right. So if we, as we move to some criteria for judging rock music, a couple points and some invalid criteria first. Um, to evaluate rock music, we have to take it seriously. I hope I don't have to um, belabor that point. I think I've made that. Um, again, so many of the musicians take it very seriously and work very hard at doing this. Sometimes they work hard to make it sound like they didn't work hard. And that's, that, take, that takes work too. Um, sometimes working hard is not fixing something that you wished you could fix. Um, you know, doing a record in a couple days and just saying, this is it, this documents what happened on these four days. Uh, one of my favorite records is John Hyatt's Bring the Family, which I think Rolling Stone voted the best record of the 80s. Uh, it's a great record if you've not heard it. And they did the entire thing, recorded it, mixed it, everything, four days. All right? That's a great record, great songs. You should check it out. Um, to, to begin to get through, uh, to think about rock music, this is what Schultz says, and I agree with him. We need to have a threefold dimension to our evaluation. We need to think about the form, we need to think about the content, and we need to think about the function. And like I was saying, whatever is noble, whatever is admirable, we can say that, for instance, the form is good, it does a creative job in this aspect, uh, but the content, eh, it's not so good, either it's trite or I disagree with it, and, you know, and you can say something else about the function. You can, all of these are areas that are interweaving together, okay? Sometimes they work together, sometimes they fight against each other. I think a great aspect, a great, um, there's some creativity in this way. Do you know this song um, by John Waite? Maybe not, Missing You. Uh, I was going, Missing You since you've been gone. You know that song, <laughs> right? So, you know, you know, it's I ain't missing you at all, right? But you can tell, no, everybody knows he's missing her terribly. Right? So, it, like, what the song means is exactly opposite to what the words mean, what the words say. If you read the words on a piece of paper, it says, since you've been gone, I ain't missing you at all. But, but he's crying out. See, it's the tone of his voice. It's the cry. It's the inflections. And then when you get to the bridge of the song, you find out that, yes, indeed, he really does miss her. He finally owns up to what he's feeling. So, it's, it, you know, it's a great example of how, the, you know, the, the, the meaning is definitely even opposite of what the words say. And uh, that's, that's why it's important to think about all those different levels, all right? And then you have to think about purpose, because you can't talk about whether something is good unless you're understanding the purpose. Is it, is it reaching its purpose? And I talked about this a little bit, so I won't belabor it, but the purpose of art, remember, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And there are lots of valid sub-purposes under that. But to do a good job evaluating a piece of rock music, you have to have some sense of what it's trying to do. And that maybe it's merely trying to entertain. It's merely, you know, just trying to rock. I remember there was a Calvin Hobbes cartoon, you know, where I guess they'd done a record and they were reading their review, and you know, it was all this, blah, you know, a couple panes of, you know, what the reviewer said, and they're reading it in the newspaper. And then, you know, I can't remember which one looks at the other one and says, "Yeah, but did we rock? <laughs> you know, who cares about all this stuff? Did we rock? You know, there's purpose in what they were trying to do." The critic thought he'd found all kinds of, you know, interesting purposes and was commenting on them. They just wanted to rock, right? And sometimes, sometimes true. Sometimes, you know, musicians and, you know, really object to critics sort of trying to interpret their, meaning, their meanings in a deeper way than they had. But I think often artists aren't fully aware of the meaning that's going on in their art. 
And uh, again, I'll refer you to Mako Fujimura. He's done some, I heard him give a talk one time on sort of trying to share your faith with artists and talking to them about the gospel, about what Christians believe. He says often a good place to start is to ask them questions about what they were trying to say or what they were exploring in their artwork. Because often, like you'll look at a piece and you'll say, it seems obvious to me that you're crying out for something that I know you can only find in God. Um, but they not, may not be aware of that. He says sometimes that's a really fruitful way to have some good conversation rather than just sort of saying, hey, you need to believe this and let me give you the little spiel. To be in a dialogue to say, what is it you're trying to say? What are the themes that are really driving you and really um, on your heart that are coming out in your artwork or in your songs, in your music, in your poetry, all that kind of stuff? So, um, all right, a couple, couple uh, minutes on invalid criteria. I think one of the, one of the uh, most commonly used invalid criteria is complexity. I, I think that, like I've told you, I think rock music can be very complex and it's subtle, but it's more subtle often. Now, there's certainly, you know, complexity and instrumental virtuosity um, in rock music as there are in all genres. But complexity is not necessarily a good or a bad thing. It depends on the purpose. For instance, I don't think many people would say that Bach's two-part inventions are not as good as a Mozart symphony simply because they're not as complex. See, it's not a valid criteria for saying this is good and this is bad. Uh, so I think, you know, the reason I put this in here is, you know, when I had, I told you about going to the RUF Life View Conference, where, you know, they didn't have any seminars about popular culture or art or anything. And I remember asking one of the campus ministers at that time, you know, why don't we have something on the arts? And he said, well, because I think most of the campus ministers would disagree with each other about it, so, you know. We couldn't ever come to a consensus, so we're just going to ignore it. Um, and but then he said, and then we got talking a little bit about some of my concerns that the main speaker was um, criticizing pop culture. And he said, "Well, you know, come on. I mean, pop culture isn't—it's not as complex as classical music. You know, it's like, yeah, that—that's not necessarily a valid criteria for saying that this is good and this is bad. All right. Um, another one that I would say is a uh, invalid criteria." is the idea, this is, you get this in C.S. Lewis, you get this as well in Ken Meyer, I think I saw his book, All God's Children, Blue Suede Shoes, a book I vehemently disagree with for a number of points, because um, I think it's manichaeistic, you know what manichaeism is? Um, manichaeism is the idea that the physical creation can be good or evil, um, so that the form itself, the beat itself can be evil. And um, I, think, I think he falls into that trap in that book myself. And I'm not the only one. William Edgar did a review of that book in the Westminster Theological Journal, which you can track down and read his review. And I think it's very perceptive on what that book is about. Um, but it, both of these guys talk about some art can be used, but real higher art, the real good stuff you receive. You, you, is that right? Or did I just mix that up? I just mixed um, yeah, I got it right. Yeah, you want to receive it. And they, what they mean by receive it is it sort of stirs you up and lifts your thoughts to sort of a higher level of existence. It makes you think about <coughs> spiritual things. I, I think, frankly, that that's platonic. You know what I mean by Platonism? The idea that something's only good if it helps you think about heaven. 
I think that's that's Christian heresy. Um, God made a physical world and said it was good. And he didn't say it was good because it helps you think about heaven. He said it's good. It says the doctrine of demons to teach people that it's not good. That's 1 Timothy chapter 4. Go back and read it. It's a very fascinating passage. So I do think if you know music or a piece of art helps you think about heaven or spiritual things, that's great. But I don't think that it has to do that to be valid and to be good. So if you want, what they do, I think, is make this distinction that sort of like, if, if it does this, then it's worthy, and if it doesn't, it's going to hear. I would rather say, if it, if it helps you think about sort of the far-off country kind of idea I talked about the other day, that could be a commendable thing. But I, I wouldn't say that's the big dividing line between whether it's good or bad, which is, is what I think they do. Um, who says that art shouldn't be used, um, and, and that that's not a good thing, all right? Um, last thing, we do have to talk about morally good and aesthetic good. Something can be morally good and aesthetically really poor. Except if it's aesthetically poor, in other words, if it's bad art, at some point it actually does get into the moral arena. What I mean is, if we're to do everything to God's glory, then aesthetically bad art does have moral implications. Always listening to consistently poor art is a failure to be a good steward of our time and God-given gifts to make judgments about art. We must maintain the delicate balance between Christian liberty, freedom to listen to poor art if you want, and seeking to improve our aesthetic standards as an implication of the cultural mandate. In other words, the cultural mandate to take dominion over all of creation, to think biblically and appreciate all that God glorifying potentially is built into this creation. So what I'm encouraging you to do is I want you to actually use the stuff we're going to talk about today. I want you to, to use it to, to seek out great music and to listen to it and appreciate it more. That's why we're doing this. Just like, you know, if you play a sport, like who likes to watch golf on TV? You know, yeah, I'd imagine you golf. No. No? You just like to watch it. I, I, I don't like to watch it. I just can't watch it. It's probably because I don't golf. But there's things that I do like to watch. I, I appreciate them more because I've tried it. And I realize, wow, you know, that's amazing. That's, there's skill to that. Um, I, I think that that's true. I think that the more you think about rock music or jazz or folk or, you know, whatever you listen to, it, it can help you appreciate it more. All right. All right, 15 minutes to do these criteria. Mm -hmm. If I don't finish them today, I'll, I'll pick up on it tomorrow because, like I, I told you, the jazz talk won't take the whole time. Um, Here's, here's some criteria to use. And again, multiple criteria. These are things that I think you can think about commending. Technical excellence. excellence. It's a large area. There's lots of things that you could say are technically excellent about a particular piece of rock music. What Schultz does in this category, and I think this is helpful, is he talks about freshness and fitness. Um, in other words, good art will exhibit some aspect of creativity or freshness. It's not just the same thing that's been done before. There's something about it that's excellent and not merely mediocre. In rock, with all art, there should be an aspect of creativity or freshness, but also this dimension of appropriateness or fit. Um, trite art is bad art. It is. But to, to really make an accurate judgment about triteness, you have to really understand the genre that you're in. right? 
Um, and you also have to have an understanding of the history of the genre. In other words, you may look at something that was you know, made 20, 30 years ago and say, well, you know, I, this sounds trite. Well, that may have been the origin of all the other things that were influenced by it. It may not be trite. It may have actually been the originator. In other words, when you think about freshness, you should think about it within its historical context. So, for instance, you know, some music, if you would say, this is great because look at the influence it had on so many other bands. Even if you wouldn't necessarily love that, you have to appreciate the, the importance of it historically and the innovation that it was at the time, right? Now, some of it, you know, you know, there are things like, for instance, that you can look at the Beatles, and you know, one of the things that they were certainly innovators in is the type of vocal harmonies that they did, which were really different and much more sophisticated than the bands before them. They also were innovators in the use of multi-track recording, incredible <coughs> innovators in that sort of thing, right? Um, and yet, you know, most people still really love to listen to that music just as it is. You know, it, it's great on so many different levels, but then it also, you know, exhibits incredible creativity and freshness for the time period, which is an extra added dimension of something to commend, right? Um, all right, so a, a piece has to also, um, you know, exhibit appropriateness. So freshness <coughs> and appropriateness or fit. This is where you get at the idea of something being tasteful. Is something tasteful. It's a very tricky area. Um, th this is where you get into the whole idea of, of faddishness. Faddishness is basically trying to introduce something new and fresh without any purpose. Um, just the freshness or the newness is supposed to exist by itself and be enough uh, reason for you to want to look at this or listen to this. And then I think there's even a fitness and appropriateness within certain subgenres. But that's the area that's really being explored a lot, I think, these days, is crossing over of subgenres or even genres, combining different things, different types, you know, this stream of, you know, you know, emo with bluegrass, you know, and I mean, just incredibly crazy combinations that, that are working. No, they are, they're, they're working, and some, sometimes it's really interesting. Maybe not even the most enjoyable, but you have to listen to it. That's a really interesting, really creative combination of things. Um, yeah, all right. Um, lots of areas, I think, where you can make judgments about technical excellence. Um, do, is there an exceptional skill in the performance of the song? Maybe the, the band as a whole, maybe the singer, maybe the guitar player, maybe the drummer. You know, the different aspects, there's all those different levels. Um, is there a particular part of the song? Is the song's got a great bridge, or that chorus is really awesome, or the guitar solo um, is great. I have a playlist in my iTunes that's just great guitar solo songs, you know. Um, is the vocal performance exceptional? Um, covers questions like, is it passionate? Um, does it groove? Does it have a good groove? Um, and I want to say something about groove, what, what musicians mean when they talk about groove. Um, you can actually analyze this if you want. Um, there, there's a little, well, now there's, um, what is it, the, the, um, the beat analyzer thing on Pro Tools. Do you know about Pro Tools? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Is that what it's called? I forget what it's called. Yeah, that's what it's a plug-in. Yeah, the beat analyzer, yeah. All right, so the groove refers to how if you've got a song and it's in 4-4 four, four time, so you've got four beats to a measure, one, two, three, four, one, two, right? And, and you know, generally a rock beat would be right one with the kick and then two and four, one and three on the kick drum, two and four on the snare, that's the back beat. The groove has to do with 
where you move the, the beats relative to strict computer precision, which you can do, you know, for instance, if, you know, on a computer, for instance, you can make it just perfect where, you know, the, the drum hits hit exactly on the beat, but it won't sound like a human being. It will sound like a computer, and drummers will know. Um, there's some, some musics where the snare drum is slightly behind the beat, two and four. That's a particular groove. Um, I think of a band like Little Feet, which y'all probably don't know. They're so laid back. Um, even ACDC, I mean, um, Highway to Hell and Back in Black, those classic records. The, drum, the snare drum, you can, you can analyze it, and you would say the snare drum on two and four is slightly behind, technically, but it feels great. And then there's other songs where it's really more pushing a little bit on top of the beat, and it has more of a frantic sound to it. I remember one time I was in college, this drummer, Steve Gadd, who's a legendary drummer, played on a lot of these um, Steely Dan records and all kinds of great stuff. But he came and he did a clinic um, with just a kick drum, a snare drum, and a hi-hat. He didn't have any other drums, and he just played, you know, and he demonstrated how he could move in time where he's hitting the snare drum, forward, backward, and how he could change the entire feel of what he's playing, not changing the tempo, doesn't have any other drums, <coughs> sort of build up tension and release, he could do it just by moving the snare in time. It's a pretty subtle thing, um, and now it's interesting, so, you know, with Pro Tools, which is basically a way that you can record on a hard drive of a computer, right, so how most people record these days, you know, they have different plug-in, you know, programs, one of them is Beat Detective, that's what it's called, yeah. Um, the beat detective, you can you can put it on a track and you can see you know if my guitar playing is is in time, and you can and then you can move it around to in time. But the thing is, if you make it perfectly in time, it'll never sound good. It won't sound real. It won't sound human. Human beings play with subtle variations in that, right? And um, I don't know how to explain it to you. I, I know that I'm not nearly as good at it as people I know. I know on our last Indelible Grace CD. I got this guy, Ian Fitchick, to play most of the guitar parts because he just grooves like you wouldn't believe. Um, you know, I, I, I let him play the main part and I would play something else. Um, there's some people that just have an incredible ability to do that. And you can hear it even like when you're playing, like you can hear the click, you know, like a metronome in your headphone. And I, and I can hear the drummers playing behind it. But it's just what, it's what makes it work just right, right? So that's an aspect. Um, of, of technical excellence that you can listen to. I, I knew a producer once who, um, he produced Dylan's Save record. <laughs> and um, Dylan won a Grammy for, um, for his vocal performance, if you can believe this, on, um, on For You Gotta Serve Somebody. And the producer was like, after this happened, he went back to the, pulled up the tapes and put them, went back in the studio. He was like, how in the world did this happen? What was there about this record that, that people thought this was an exceptional vocal performance? And what he concluded was it's, that Dylan had a remarkable ability to, to, to groove in the track. It wasn't so much you know, his pitch um, or his um, diction. It, it was really, there was a sense in which if you took his vocal out of the mix, the, the whole record sounded different. It just didn't have the same energy. It didn't have the same... There's something about it that was, that, that, you know, I, I give you lots of examples of that, you know, where if you if you mute one person, like the whole thing sounds like they're not together at all, 
you put that person back in and everything comes together. Um, often when we're making records, well, you're trying to figure out, I'm, this is the way I approach it, what is the like one or two elements that are really the basic groove of the song? And let's make sure we don't lose those. Maybe it's the drums, maybe it's the guitar, maybe it's the bass line, but there's something that's really carrying the groove, that's really the center of that record. And let's find that and make sure that it doesn't get obscured or lost when we add all kinds of other elements. So, um, we can ex examine the writing of the song, right? That can be technically excellent in a lot of ways versus the performance of the song. You can also look at the excellence in the area of sound of the record. That's a whole other area, right, of appreciation, the engineer, um, which isn't just a matter of reproducing the sounds as purely and naturally as possible, because now there's creativity in changing the sounds or uh, altering the sounds in using the recording studio as an instrument itself. Radiohead, for instance, is a great example of you know, a band that just knows how to use the recording studio as another instrument. Um, and then I would say, make sure you're judging technical excellence within the historical context, all right? Next, next uh, thing I would say is moral and religious integrity. So because rock music, like all cultural activity, is a map of reality, you can and you should think about, is this a true map of reality? And it may be true to a certain degree, but then not true about this. It may be really true in sort of um, giving voice to the angst or the, the cry, but not very good at proposing a solution. In other words, it, it may be really great at saying life is really hard, but then it may go on to say, and there's no hope and never will be, right? And so you would say, it's, it, it's good in that it, it gives authentic voice to this cry in a way that, that I can even be able to offer my own cry. <laughs> but then it, it, over here, it's not morally good because it's, it's saying something that's not true, right? Um, <clears throat> so that, that's another area to think about. Again, it's complicated. Um, I think you also can even think about this. Does, this. does this music, does this song further the cultural mandate? And you go, what in the world do you mean by that? I mean, the calling for mankind to take dominion over the creation, to um, bring justice to all areas of life, to bring God's peace, shalom, um, to all areas of life, can a piece of music do that? And I do think some pieces of music can have a way of contributing to that. And I think others can have a way of working against that. So that's something I think to think about as well. I love this quote from Bruce, Bruce Springsteen. This, I think this was from an Emmy Award acceptance speech. He got an Emmy for, was it the song Philadelphia, I remember, from that movie? I think that's when I, you guys probably don't remember this because that was in the mid-90s, it was when I was in seminary. But he got an Emmy for the best original song for a movie, and it was the song Philadelphia. Um, and he said, his acceptance speech was awesome. He said this, you do your best work and hope that it pulls out the best in your audience, that some piece of it spills over into the real world and into people's everyday lives, and it takes the edge off the fear and allows us to recognize each other through our veil of differences. I always thought that was one of the things popular art was supposed to be about. I love that. Right? Taking the edge off the fear. In other words... There are a lot of things like medicine and art and music that are a way of mitigating, of, of, of fighting against and pushing back the effects of the fall in this world. Right? There are certain songs that bring comfort and hope and the ability to carry on. And, uh, and that's a good thing. 
Um, you can also look at, you know, under this idea of moral integrity, does this piece of art, uh, does it stay true to its intent, or does it prostitute itself simply to make money? Now, again, I don't think there's anything wrong with rock just being for entertainment. And I think making money basically is usually a, a connection between whether or not it's resonated with a lot of people and whether it served its intent to entertain a lot of people. I don't think it's necessarily bad because it's popular. Um, but there's some music that uh, it seems pretty obvious that it's not been really worked out with care, but is simply an attempt to, you know, make money. I, 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 you know, maybe a not controversial example is from the early blues recordings. It really is unbelievable if you, if you study the, the early blues, how, you know, one person will have a hit with, like, milk cow blues, and then, like, over the next six months, there's, you know, calf blues or, you know, milk mooing cow blues. I mean, it's like 30 records come out that are an exact copy with a slight change in the words, you know. It, that stuff still kind of goes on. It's like, you know, one, one artist hits, and then all of a sudden there's a slew of people just like that. Now, it may be that the record companies are only signing, signing them. It may be that people are actually changing their sound. Um, but generally, none of those copycat groups, you know, exhibit much, um, much interesting stuff. And um, sometimes may even be just a crass attempt to get money <coughs> and kind of jump on the bandwagon, right? Um, morally, you can also ask, is it good? Does it promote things like racism? Is it derogatory to women? Is it pornographic? Um, does it do, do away with structure? Um, and I think there's a way to talk about fighting against structure as a way to fight against what's wrong in our world. Um, but I, I don't want to get into that too much. Um, aesthetic expressiveness. I'm going to get done, done this in five minutes, so I'm going to keep pressing on. Um, ex aesthetic expressiveness. It's a difficult thing to pin down, pin down, but it's important to think about. Basically, in this, we're saying, does this piece move you? You may say, yeah, it's really great. The playing's excellent. It's a really creative song. Great groove. The recording is, is wonderful. But it just doesn't move me. There's no emotional connection or impact. Now, I don't know exactly how to pin that down, but I think that that's something important to think about that, and a commendable thing. that this, There's something about this piece that just moves me. There's something about this record or this performance that just moves me. Um, and now, I think the interesting thing is some people are very suspicious of pop music and rock music precisely because it moves you. <laughs> um, it maybe it makes you want to dance or, you know, move around. And I think this is really so silly because there's nothing in the Bible that says <coughs> that the music that moves you is bad or dangerous. The Greeks thought that, and certainly people like Augustine, influenced by Plato, thought that um, because they thought that things that moved the bodily passions were not nearly as good as things that would make you contemplate, you know, um, heaven and heavenly things. But there's nothing, I think the Psalms certainly expect music to move us deeply. And so I think that's an important thing, right? And music that moves you is risky, right? But so, so is art. Art always is. It's never really as clear and as safe uh, as propositions, but that's all right. Um, good rock should have energy and passion, both in the way it's played and how it's perceived. Um, it's like Duke Ellington said, it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Um, the, the parallel to rock is, you know, that song rocks. What does that mean when you say that? That song rocks. Um, it means something. 
It means it's connecting with you and moving you in some way. Um, political significance, you can read what I wrote there. Um, the sexuality of rock. Um, even if all rock is about sex, it's not bad. It's, it, what matters is, um, what is it saying about sexuality? Right? So you should think in terms of that because the, the connection between rock and sexuality is a big one and is often there, so it's worth thinking about. And then finally, social scope. Um, does this really connect broadly and deeply? There's some songs that may be broad but don't have much depth in their connection to people. There's other songs that may only connect with a small group of people but in a really deep way. So that's worth thinking about. I can commend this piece because it really has a broad connection with lots of people. Um, I can connect so really like this because it connects real deeply even if with a smaller segment of people. Um, I think of a song like, um, that, well, he was playing Sean Colvin. Did you, you all recognize Sean Colvin? You don't even know Sean Colvin anymore, do you? Um, but she had a song about spousal abuse, right, that won the Grammy for the Song of the Year. That's pretty unusual to have a song that actually speaks honestly about an issue like that. Um, Sonny came home, got a call. When Sonny gets to the Sonny, was it, was it, Sonny came home, yeah. And that was amazing. You know, here's, you know, an artist for like, you know, the, the uh, once people last year, you know, at the Emmy Awards. It's, it's amazing when something that connects deeply also connects broadly. Um, and that's very commendable thing. All right, tomorrow we do jazz.